Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Democracy Sausage Extra. A few days ago, we spoke to the ABC's chief economics correspondent, Emma Alberici, and ANU economist, Professor Bob Brunig, about the COVID crisis and the massive hit to the economy globally and domestically. Today, I speak to another product of the Australian National University where he undertook his PhD, Dr. Jim Chalmers, who is, of course, the shadow treasurer. Jim, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. I've been looking forward to it. Um, really glad to have you here. It's um, obviously a very uh, extraordinary time, really, uh, economically as well as in terms of you know public health. Um, but before we get to all of that, um, you're a Queenslander by birth. How did you come to be studying in Canberra at ANU? Well, you're right, Mark. I'm a I'm born and bred Queenslander. But uh, when I finished um, some work in the Queensland Public Service uh, after I'd done some undergraduate study at Griffith University, uh, I thought it uh, if I was ever a chance to come back and teach at Griffith or, or work at Griffith, then it would be good to have a couple of different universities on my CV. Uh, and so I got some good advice from uh, so from people I trusted, and they said uh, that the ANU was uh, you know a really good place to study politics in particular. And I was aware of a great guy called John Warhurst, who you know as well. He's a real institution at the ANU, and I had the opportunity to go and work with John. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's I, been on this podcast before. Yeah, yeah he, he's terrific, as you know, and uh, he's just one of the one of the greats of. Uh, of that field, and I got to work with him and another guy, great guy called John Hart, who was at the ANU for a long time, and also actually a guy that we uh, we unfortunately lost this month, uh, an amazing guy called David Adams, uh, who used to be across the hallway from me, and we he's just passed away this month, but he's another of the the greats of ANU. So I got to work with all of them. I had a great time at ANU, uh, and uh, had a really good experience there. And and when you were at ANU doing that uh, that doctoral research, uh, did it occur to you at the time that you, you know that you'd be spending a lot of your life in Canberra? Really, uh, you went on, of course, to be a, a political advisor. You worked for Kim Beasley. You worked for Wayne Swan. You were Wayne Swan's chief of staff through the GFC, indeed. Um, and uh, and uh, of course, you're now an MP yourself and and uh, shadow treasurer. You could end up being this nation's top economic minister. So very Canberra-centric uh, kind of uh, career as well. 
Yeah, I don't necessarily see it that way. Obviously, it had crossed my mind that, uh, you know, I wanted to be involved in national politics or in one way or another when I went to the ANU. But I, I had that seed planted in my mind uh, by my modern history teacher, this amazing guy called Norbert Grulick. Uh, and, uh, you know, he sort of gave me the sense that, you know, I thought politics was something that other people got involved in. I thought it was something for, you know, the people from, uh, you know, had connections or, you know, were from the fancy suburbs or something like that. I didn't have any of that. Uh, but I, I, I had this seed of an idea when I went to the ANU and I didn't know how things would play out, but I always wanted to make uh, some sort of contribution nationally. Um, but I don't really see that as Canberra-centric necessarily. I sort of, you know, the best thing about this job is you get to be, you get to do the kind of high-end policy work at the same time as you get to be, uh, you know, a form of a social worker and help people out in our local community, speak up for people and stand up for people in my area, which is an area which has traditionally been uh, pretty disadvantaged. Okay. I mean, it's a very good point you make about uh, about being Canberra-centric. Obviously, you're an MP and you have a, a very large constituency to service and and also being a frontbencher, you have to move around the country a lot, presumably, presumably as well. So it's not just about being in Canberra, but uh, nonetheless, it is uh, it is certainly uh, the place where I guess you know you come to to make that difference, to deliver for the people of your electorate, and uh, to pursue the policy ideas that that you're committed to. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, if you if you care about your community. Uh, you know, enough that you want to serve it and you care about your country enough that you want to change it, then the main game is obviously national politics. And, you know, I got a, you know, a sense of it pretty early on that it's something I wanted to be involved in. And, uh, I didn't, you know, quite envisage, uh, how things would, would play out, but I, I knew I wanted to do something in this general space. And I'm really pleased to get the opportunity. I remember being uh, a journalist in the press gallery during the global financial crisis, uh, you know, obviously watching the election of the, the Rudd government, um, you know, the very rosy forecast at that time for, uh, for the budget, for the economy, uh, and then the GFC hits, it changes everything. It must have been extraordinary to be a, a senior advisor in that process uh, and, to, and to watch that unfold. And, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, within the space of a dozen years, you're kind of witnessing two of these enormous ructions and the second one, the one we're in now, the COVID crisis, really dwarfing that uh, that earlier GFC? Yeah, it is pretty remarkable to have two events of this magnitude within the space of a dozen years. It's, um, you know, it's extraordinary. Very few people saw the GFC coming almost, uh, you know, nobody saw in this, you know, to this magnitude saw... COVID coming. And so, uh, yeah, it is, uh, it has been a really turbulent time in the economy and in, and in societies more broadly. Uh, it's a bit different this time around. Um, yeah, I think the main difference is, you know, that was a, a genuinely a financial crisis, uh, with massive economic consequences right around the world. This time, uh, the economic consequences flow from the decisions taken to close down the economy to try and contain the virus for all the right reasons. And so this time around, the government's got one foot on the accelerator at the same time as they've got another foot on the brake. They're, they're shutting down the economy at the same time as they're trying to keep it alive. Uh, and that's what makes this time, uh, you know, different uh, and incredibly complex too. I guess this is inviting you to be quite partisan about it, but nonetheless, it, it's a, I'd be interested to hear your view about it. Labor is obviously providing a great deal of bipartisanship to the government through this crisis. Um, you know, there's been um, 
very very little sitting of parliament. I know Labor wanted to see more sittings of parliament itself, but uh, you've waved through all of the uh, the you know the the three stimulus packages. Uh, there have been attempts to make some changes, and indeed you have negotiated some extra money. But um, is there a sense? In your mind, that that wasn't the case uh, during the GFC. There was certainly um, a more partisan atmosphere about some of the stimulus spending then. Yeah, well, it's not just a sense. I mean, it's a fact that uh, you know, in the the worst sort of part of the GFC, the depths of the of the financial crisis in in two thousand eight nine, uh, the then opposition, the the Liberals and Nationals, they voted against. Um, most of the stimulus, uh, which turned out to be a big factor in getting Australians through the crisis. And so uh, that's one of the things that we learned observing the behaviour of the opposition then was we are determined under Anthony's leadership to be more constructive and more responsible. Um, and you're right that being constructive doesn't mean being silent. If we think things can be done better, if we think there's a, some kind of lack of urgency in what they're proposing, uh, then we've made those points too. But overwhelmingly, we've said all along, uh, we'll be as supportive as we can of what the government's proposing to do here. I think there are really high expectations on the political system during a crisis like this that we do try and find common ground, and that's what we've been doing. Uh, and that is, you know, when the history is written of this period and it's compared with the history written about uh, the period around the GFC, one of the main differences will be this time around a more constructive opposition. And do you think the, the 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 opposition as it was then, and the government now uh, has learnt from that process? Because obviously, um, as you say, there was a lot of politics played during the GFC, and 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 pretty much ever since then, the you know the, the dominant narrative from the coalition has been that Labor was profligate, that it spent far too much. There was there was waste. There was uh, uh, what uh, Scott Morrison referred to at one stage as a fiscal hangover. Um, I mean, none of that's uh, you know going going to seem like much you know a hill of beans really compared to the scale of um, of spending and and economic disruption that we're seeing coming out of this crisis. Do you think the the, the Liberal Party will be changed as a result in the sort of an ideological sense, like less inclined to be so partisan, or is that just wishful thinking? I don't know if they're permanently changed, but they should be chastened um, because what we learned in this crisis is that all of that rubbish over the last 10 or 12 years has, has been just that. Uh, and, you know, one of the – it's not the most important thing, but one of the galling things about this is, uh, you know, you would have seen on Four Corners the other night when, when David Spears did that show about the government's response. You know, all the same characters who have been – uh, deriding government intervention in the economy, saying that stimulus is a farce, you know, saying that there was some kind of debt and deficit disaster. There they all lined up to take credit for the decisions taken uh, during this period. And I think that's as good an illustration of any um, that, uh, you know, that, that history is casting its own verdict on, on how they behaved then in 2009 and how they've behaved since. Uh, and the most important thing is that they, you know, they have learned some kind of lesson. We welcome the fact that they've had a change of heart. Clearly, when uh, economies are in crisis and and people's, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Australians' are jobs are threatened, then that calls for, um, you know, governments to contemplate things that they wouldn't contemplate in normal times. That's the lesson of the GFC. That's the lesson. Uh, from now as well. I think the, the, the main thing that, well, one of the other considerations that as well is if they've learned the lesson of 2009, we want to make sure that they've learned the lesson of 2014 as well. 
and you would have covered that first horror budget of this, um, you know, the then uh, Abbott hockey government. Uh, and what they did then was they, you know, they managed coming out of the crisis badly by asking the most vulnerable people in the community to, to, to carry a disproportionate load when it came to paying the debt back. So we hope that they've learned from that as well and not just from the earlier period. Yeah, it's a really good point because they very much justified that on this kind of attack on on Labor's GFC spending, you know, that we have to do this rapid budget repair or they used it as an excuse to, uh, you know, flout some of the promises they'd made uh, and pursue, you know, very, um, very sort of tough budget repair mechanisms. Do you think that temptation will be there? I mean, obviously this time it's them doing the spending uh, and in the first few years it'll be them... Uh, you know, presumably looking to have a response to that. Uh, the question is, what will that response be? At the moment, we seem to hear some fairly encouraging um, messages from the government. I mean, it's talking about new thinking, about uh, things being back on the table. It's talking about using growth to um, to manage the debt rather than, you know, sort of harsh fiscal repair. But... Um, Will there be a temptation? Will there, I mean, you've watched the Liberal Party for a long time. Will there be people inside it asking for, um, you know, for tough measures to get the budget back into balance? Yeah, I think there will, Mark. I think um, that's the sort of, uh, for a lot of people on, on that side of politics, that's the kind of reflex reaction. Um, but let's let's see what they come up with. They've pushed the budget back now to October. Uh, they've started sending up the kind of smoke signals about, um, you know, what they want to focus on. I think the, the disappointing aspect of that from our point of view is I think if, you know, Australians have been asked to make all these sacrifices, we get through it, we deal with the health issues, we come out the other side and then it'd be disappointing for Australians if all of a sudden the government says, oh, look, it turns out that all the solutions to the future economy are all the same things that we've been banging on about for the last seven years. I think people will be disappointed in that. I think that the country and certainly in the Labor Party, we're up for a really big conversation uh, about what the country looks like after the, the coronavirus wards are empty. Uh, but we've got to make sure that conversation doesn't just fo- focus on the kind of narrow confines of all the old arguments about industrial relations and, and red tape and the like. We need to have a, a proper conversation about how we create jobs after the virus is dealt with. Let's take a quick break there, and when we come back, we'll talk about uh, some of those ideas and whether politics and and, and economics uh, have been changed by this, or we'll just uh, sort of go back to the old uh, the old tram lines of division we've seen in the past. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. 
Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, Jim, you were talking about, uh, you know, the the temptations that uh, political parties have, I suppose, to... Um you know, to, to revert to type after this. Uh, Scott Morrison at a press conference uh, on the day we're recording this Thursday uh, was asked about the idea of a national summit, um, very much uh, reviving something that Bob Hawke uh, did very successfully and to some extent uh, Kevin Rudd did as well with his um, uh, 2020 ideas, which led to the Henry Tax Review, among other things. Um, his response was interesting. He said they've got a rolling summit happening at the moment, really, by virtue of this national cabinet. And there has been talk of this national cabinet continuing on after this crisis has passed, whenever that will be. How do you think, the, what's your assessment of the national cabinet, uh, this, this, this much more cooperative framework between the feds and the state governments and uh, what, what appears to be a, a new kind of oneness in the federation? Well, I think it's important, particularly in during a crisis, that you've got a way to manage and, and you know and transact and process all of these really fast moving issues. And so, to that extent, um, you know, I think that that group has done a, a reasonable job, with some with some exceptions. Um, for those of us who've been long term believers in the possibilities of you know Commonwealth state relations and cooperation and the Coag agenda and all of that. It's really just a, you know, another way of saying that COAG matters. You know, the relationship between the feds and the state governments matter in particular. Um, and so if, if the prime minister is flagging a sort of a recommitment to COAG, which has been diminished a bit, uh, over recent years, then that's a good thing. Um, because some of these things can only be done with state, Commonwealth state cooperation. Uh, and, uh, if he recognizes that, that's a good thing. Uh, I think there's also an opportunity for a broader conversation um, beyond, you know, just the the leaders of the Commonwealth and state governments. You know, business has got an important voice, and they and they use it. That's good, but it's not the only voice. Again, you know, we need the labour movement involved. We need the community sector involved. We need to um, recognise that we've we've seen what it likes what it's like to ref, to rely more on expert advice. Uh, you know, in the institutional side of things. Um, so let's not artificially limit ourselves. Let's have a big, broad conversation about what matters most to us. Um, let's, you know, also measure that kind of progress more effectively, which is another um, passion project of mine. Really, in the economy, is to work out how do we build on all the traditional ways that we measure economic progress and include some other ideas as well. Now's a good opportunity for that too. So, so let's do that. Um, I don't think by nature Morrison is a, a natural kind of consensus builder, but if this crisis uh, has encouraged him down that path, then then that's a good thing. Well, it'd be really interesting. It's a very, uh, um, I think, acute observation of him, but at the same time, I think we'd all concede that uh, the Prime Minister we saw during the bushfires um, is not the Prime Minister we've seen during the Corona crisis, perhaps because of the epic failure of the bushfires, the way you know he handled that and the political damage that it did to him, he went into this corona crisis as it as it unfolded, knowing that he he couldn't afford to you know to mismanage it in that way. There have been some mistakes, but broadly speaking, I think we've seen 
a side of Scott Morrison that certainly wasn't evident in that evident in that early crisis. Would you concede that? Uh, I, I think it's uh, you know not to be unkind about it, but I think that he had set expectations so low during the the bushfire crisis. I mean, I, I, I am genuinely trying not to be flippant about your very serious question, um, but I think expectations were pretty low, uh, and on the days where he exceeds the expectations that he established during the the bushfire crisis, then people are prepared to give him marks for that. Um, but I don't think he is by nature or in, or uh, inclination uh, a very uh, inclusive or consensus-oriented leader. Uh, but I say genuinely, if this if this crisis has encouraged him down that path, then then good. Uh, because the challenges ahead of us are so great and so substantial that the old kind of binary politics as usual won't cut it. You know, if we've got a long tail of unemployment, for example, if we've got hundreds of thousands of Australians uh, who find it really hard to make their way back into the labour market, then these are um, challenges which should be, you know, bigger and more important than, you know, who wins the political barney on the six o'clock news. Well, one of those uh, areas in which uh, there there clearly could be uh, gains from a greater level of consensus is in the labour market, as you've as you've mentioned, uh, and having uh, unions, the labour movement, uh, in, involved in a more a more constructive and participatory way uh, in that process would be a marked change from the rhetoric and atmosphere this government has set up. It's, you know, very much pursued the idea of, you know, all unions are run by thugs and, you know, its ensuring integrity bill was one of the things dredged up from the last term and, uh, and, and put back onto the agenda this time. It will be interesting to see whether the government continues with that in light of Christian Porter's, the Industrial Relations Minister's new and constructive relationship with Sally McManus at the ACTU. And, and there are some signs that the government is getting that. The, the government realises, well, that there may be some gains here in being less antagonistic and more constructive and consultative. Is that your view? Oh, clearly, there have been more discussions between the government and the unions than there have been for, for the rest of the life of, of this government, and that's a good thing. I think it shouldn't be remarkable uh, for a government of either political persuasion to engage uh, you know, with the ACTU and with other peak organisations. Certainly when Labor's in government, we engage with the peak business organisations and the peak uh, union uh, representatives. Uh, and it shouldn't be remarkable in, when, when, when the Liberals do that as well when they're in office. Um, I, I think the, what worries me is that this might become, the relationship between the ACTU and the government might become a sort of a, an historical oddity uh, which is all about this this crisis and it doesn't carry on. The reason I'm concerned about that or worried that that won't carry on is because all of the old rhetoric uh, is, is coming back now. You know, they, they want to have another go at the integrity bill, which is essentially a, a union bashing bill. They want to, uh, they pushed through a really sneaky change around agreement making just last week. Um, and all of the talk is about reviving you know, the old IR agenda that they've been keen to revive for, for some years now. And the reason why I think that's troubling, take the politics out of it, the reason why I think that's troubling is because one of the big things we learned from this crisis is just how precarious people's work lives are. And the idea that you would introduce into that mix, you know, more flexibility, which is code in many cases for insecurity, is mad. 
Um, we've got a massive problem with insecure work in this economy and stagnant wages. Uh, and the idea that you would tilt the balance even further uh, against millions of Australian workers, I think, is just learning yeah, precisely the wrong message from what's just happened. So this is what you're talking about here is the, the provision they, uh, as you say, sort of put through or snuck through, uh, which allows employers to reduce the amount of uh, sort of consultation time uh, they give workers when they're making changes to enterprise bargaining agreements, those that exist outside and above the award. Um, that's now down to 24 hours and... Uh, it happens right at a time when, as you say, there's a huge amount of insecurity in the labour market. There are many people who are worried about their jobs, their whole industries, uh, and, and you're saying that was that's not a good sign. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that change to the agreement-making process was just, um, you know, unwarranted. It, was, uh, it came out of the blue. You can imagine for a lot of vulnerable workers, the idea that they can get good advice on an agreement within a 24-hour period is, is, is fanciful. But just to, I mean, something you just said then, Mark, you, you rightly identified that a lot of workers are worried. Um, I think it's it's so much more than that. You know, people are, they're petrified about their jobs right now for obvious reasons, absolutely petrified. Um, but they're also Is that what really you're picking fr- up as, as a, sorry to interrupt you there, Jim, but is that what you're picking up as a, an MP, like you're, you're hearing absolutely. from constituents directly? Absolutely. Uh, you know, people in tears, um, you know, and, and so they're, they're petrified. But the, the other thing about that is that's the near-term um, fear that they have, but they're also really frightened about what the future looks like. And they don't want the story of the the future Australia, which is written after this crisis subsides, they don't want to be written out of that story. They're they're frightened about whether they fit uh, in the economy that exists after this crisis. They know it's been a big reset. They know that all of the old certainties have sort of in one way or another been blown up. And so the worried conversations they have in hushed tones after the kids go to bed are about what does the future look like for them? And they've got commitments. Household debt was already at record highs before the crisis hit. They've got all kinds of commitments. Uh, and so I think one of the reasons why the onus is on us to come back to some of those earlier questions, to be responsible and constructive, and why the onus is on Scott Morrison to be more inclusive and, and, and to seek consensus more genuinely and to involve the states, uh, is because this isn't actually in the end about a political contest. It's about what the story of Australia is after that and whether, you know, real people in real communities are written into that story. And right now, if you talk to enough people, there is enough fear that they're going to miss out, that there's going to be a generation of people who miss out after this. And that's the most important thing we have to focus on. What do you think is the, uh, within within that framework of focusing on that, what do you think is the uh, the key to that? I mean, wages, for example, Obviously, jobs are important. Going back to the point about changing the the consultation time for EBAs, I mean, the logic of that was a lot of industries are facing, a lot of employers are facing dramatically reduced demand and 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 difficult circumstances, and so might need to make quite quick adjustments to, you know, to their uh, to their operations. Um, you know, that's that's kind of understandable at one level, um, but. What, what, what do you think looking forward is the, is the key to the recovery? Is it to do something about stagnant wages? And if it is, what is that thing? Well, you know, how do we unlock wages growth, for example? 
Well, the most important thing is you keep as many people attached, you know, in the time being, because that impacts on how you recover out of this. You know, you would know from the early 90s recession that a lot of people who lost their jobs then didn't find their way back in the labour market, particularly older male workers. That was a massive, massive problem. And so it matters what we do now to that, to that challenge, to what the recovery uh, looks like. Um, clearly, you've got to grow the economy in a more inclusive way. That means getting energy policy right. Uh, it means having the preconditions for good you know, manufacturing, for example. The preconditions are not just energy, but research and development skills, all of those uh, agendas as well. Uh, but clearly, a crisis of this magnitude also means you've got to look at you know, labour market programs. You've got to look at um, uh, you know, whether the government has to do more uh, to to keep more people attached to the labour market and and um, you know all of those things will have an impact on wages. Uh, at the same time, you've got to guard against the kind of industrial relations changes that'll make it harder for people to get good wage outcomes, and we've dealt with those too. What about public un- unlocking the public sector? You know, freeze on public sector wages growth, for example. I mean, it constitutes a significant part of the economy, and it's very rarely spoken about, but. I mean, we, we need to do something, don't we, to sort of increase competition in the labour market, increase competition for for um, for labour, and uh, surely the public sector holds some of the key there. Well, one of the, that's one of the interesting points that the Reserve Bank Governor made uh, before the before the crisis, and it surprised a lot of people. It's not a typical position for a, for the Governor of the Reserve Bank to take that. You know, perhaps the the the, the public sector could lead here on uh, on wages growth, and that just gives you a sense of the scale of the problem more broadly that the RBA governor w- was saying that we've had historically stagnant wages even before this, uh, you know, record household debt, we had declining living standards, um, <clears throat> you know, the economy just wasn't growing in, a, in, a, in strongly enough or in a certain way that to give people the, you know, the, the wages growth that they need. And a big part of that story uh, is that even for people who are working, a lot of people are underemployed. Uh, they want to work more hours and they can't find the hours that they need. Um, and so, you know, you know, and that's why work's been so insecure. One of the most uh, devastating numbers that have been released in the last little while was actually the one from the Reserve Bank Governor earlier this week, where he said that he thinks about a fifth of the hours worked in the economy will disappear in the first half of this year. That's just a, just a phenomenally confronting thing to think about when we already had a problem with underemployment We've lost about 20% of the hours worked in the economy, and they obviously uh, won't just, um, you know, miraculously return by the end of the year. And that's that's another really important thing, I think, Mark, is this idea of snapback that you've heard Scott Morrison talk about. You know, this kind of assumption that in in six months' time you can pull all of the support out of the economy because it would have miraculously, you know, snapped back to life. I think that's, um, you know, that. It remains to be seen. It would be a good thing if it does happen, but uh, I'm, I'm sceptical that that's what we'll see happen. I think this, this uh, crisis for a lot of people, not for everybody, will have a, a pretty long tail. Yeah, it does look like uh, that, uh, that earlier talk of snapback just seems increasingly kind of um, unlikely, maybe even ridiculous now given the scale of this thing and just the, the, the multiple ways in which uh, the downturn is manifesting, uh, particularly that point you make about, uh, you know, fewer hours, for example. I mean, we had un- underemployment as a problem already. Um, some of the assistance, obviously the job keeper program and presumably the job seeker, you know, the doubling of the dole, you know, this lasts for a set period of time. 
we don't know at this stage how long this crisis is going to go for. We don't know whether that's going to be adequate. But um, Labor, since the election, has certainly taken the view that the you know the old unemployment benefit um, new start was inadequate. The government has doubled it with this job seeker payment. What's Labor's position on it now? I mean, obviously you support that increase, but would you support it becoming permanent now? Is that is that the sort of declared position of the opposition? We haven't come to a view on a dollar figure, Mark, but I think, um, you know, first of all, the government needs to stay a bit flexible about when they turn off the support that's in the economy because, as you rightly say, there's a lot of uncertainty about when this will all, um, uh, you know, when things will be, um, you know, much better. And, and it, it matters almost as much, it matters how you turn off some of this support almost as much as it matters how you turned it on in the first place. If you withdraw the support too quickly, then you stop the recovery in its tracks. And so that's something that we've been encouraging the government publicly and privately to, to consider. Um, when it comes to the permanent level of what used to be... Sorry, it certainly wasn't turned on too quickly, was it? No, we, and we had some things to say about the, the, what we saw as a bit of a lack of, a lack of urgency uh, in all of that. Um, in terms of the permanent level of what used to be called New Start and now is called Job Seeker, yeah, we made the case for some time that we thought it was inadequate we thought it was bad for the economy and and bad for the for the job seeker um, to be asked to live on on forty dollars a day, uh, and really to come back to what we were saying before about building a consensus in the community. It's really only the it's really only the the Morrison government who thinks that the old level of of New Start was sufficient. I mean, there is an amazing um, uh, consensus uh, behind. Uh, a higher level of uh, of unemployment benefit. John Howard is in that cart. Uh, um, the BCA is in that cart. The union movement, the Labor Party, uh, ACOS, and other community groups. That might be the most broadly supported change uh, in the in the economic policy suite. Is that we can do a bit better uh, for people, uh, you know, on unemployment benefits. So if they're looking for consensus. Uh, then maybe there's an opportunity there. Especially seeing as they uh, are now going to uh, regrettably constitute a much larger slice of the voting population as well. I mean, perhaps, uh, you know, if one was cynical, one would say that suddenly when the unemployed, as they rapidly, you know, swelled, the ranks of whom rapidly swelled as this crisis unfolded, when they became numerically important suddenly or electorally important, uh, by virtue of their number, they suddenly uh, had some political clout and got got a sudden doubling. Uh, until then, it, it felt like there were no votes in in the unemployed, and 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 they were languishing on forty dollars a day. Um, look, we've only got a few minutes left, but there's two two other things, perhaps more optimistic, that uh, we can go to. One of them is just uh, something you mentioned before: um, the, res- uh, the the new respect for expertise. Uh, which we're seeing out of this. I mean, many people obviously make the comparison with the, uh, the somewhat more hostile relationship between policy and expertise in the climate space. Uh, but, but the government has been, governments, state and federal, have been very strongly guided by uh, medical expertise, scientific expertise, if you will, uh, through this crisis. I think it's my sense is that this has actually also re-energized politics. It's kind of restored some level of faith in politics. Voters want to see their governments acting on the basis of and and enacting evidence-based policy. They don't want to see the kind of theatrics that has dominated politics for so long. And 
Uh, I'm wondering whether that at least might be a lesson that everyone across the political class uh, will absorb. Yeah, hopefully, again, it's not one of those kind of temporary oddities from this from this period. Um, you know, it's. I think climate is the climate change is the most obvious area where the the scientific consensus has been, you know, diminished and and you know, and attacked at times in a really quite an unedifying uh, way. And so, if this is a lesson to uh, to, to more of the political system and more to the more of the broader community that uh, we can do more to listen to experts, and that'd be a really good development. You know, my worry is that the kind of you know, there's it, probably five changes I think that that this has brought about. It's it's made people realise how precarious their financial and work lives are, financial situation and work lives. Uh, it's made people maybe temporarily, but um, it's made people have a more regard for expert advice and also see that governments, you know, can move quickly to address problems. You know, we, that's, that's been a, you know, a difference. It's changed the way we've, we work for a lot of people. It's, it's made us reconsider our work-life balance, but also, you know, from where we work. And this is an example, uh, of that. It's made us reconsider what's essential. Um, not just in our own lives, but in our economy and, and, you know, what kind of workers. And the fifth thing which we, you know, which which others are, are engaging with is, you know, it's it's made people think about the old, the kind of drawbridge, whether the drawbridge has come up um, because of the closure of the international borders and all of that sort of thing. Um, but but really why that kind of matters is, you know, what if this is a big reset, you know, what can we preserve from it that matters to us? Um, and and reliance on or greater reliance on experts would be a really good thing for us to maintain. Yes, it's an excellent point. Can I just get your uh, reaction finally on uh, a bigger picture, Malcolm Turnbull's uh, book? I'm not sure whether you've had a chance to, to wade through it yet. We had an earlier discussion where you were making the point that um, you were quite moved by his account of uh, his, I guess, his mental state, uh, mental deterioration, mental health deterioration um, after he lost the leadership as leader of the opposition back in 2009. Um, what, what's your reaction? What, what are your sort of thoughts about this, this prime ministerial memoir? Yeah, I've read, uh, I haven't read it from start to finish. I've sort of been picking at it, uh, the areas that interest me and are clearly the most fascinating bit from my point of view, the most moving bit was just to understand how low he got after he lost the leadership the first time. I found that really moving and, I, and listening to him talk about it in interviews, particularly the one with Lee Sales the other night, I, I found that confronting because the reality is that this, you know, political life is a really rugged, um, you know, difficult, um, emotional existence uh, and that's not, you know, we don't want, people to get the violins out we choose this life and there's a massive upside we get to make a contribution but every once in a while somebody says something or writes something which makes you think you know just what a what a rugged existence it is particularly i think for prime ministers who are more or less permanently in the public spotlight uh, i also read the the parts about climate change and energy that's a, a policy passion of mine and so i was interested in his reflections on the various false starts on 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 all of that uh, but I haven't read uh, I haven't read every bit of it. Uh, I probably will get around to reading it from from start to finish. Uh, I think it's good that that uh, you know politicians from all sides um, give people an insight into their into their thinking, whether you like them or not, whether you think they are a success or not. 
whether they're from your side of politics or your inclination politically or not, I've, I've always tried to, uh, you know, immerse myself in those kind of biographies and autobiographies because you learn a lot from them. Yes, it's really interesting. I, I, I was kind of um, also moved by his account of how, how depressed he got. Uh, it was obviously a very dark place that he, he went to there. Uh, and it, to me, it sort of indicated a, a judgment I'd made earlier that, um, and I'd written about this at the time, but that he brought to the prime ministership in 2016 when he, uh, 2015, when he, um, took over from Tony Abbott. Uh, he brought to that um, a degree of emotional scarring from uh, his previous uh, stint as leader, and from the, the the you know the very kind of violent, I suppose, in political terms, circumstances with which that job was ripped off him, and which led to that you know great period of despair. And I think um, that was probably underappreciated because the big thing that defined Malcolm Turnbull's time as prime minister, really, in many people's minds, was his. Failure to live up to um, what people thought Malcolm Turnbull stood for. He was a very well recognised figure, perhaps one of the best known figures to come to the job, sort of uh, in terms of uh, a profile outside of politics. Uh, you know, Bob Hawke was in that category, but most of the others have made their profile in Parliament itself. Um, he was known as a Republican. He was known for his his liberal position on same sex marriage. He was known as a big backer on uh, of emissions trading and of the climate change uh, case, and yet all of those things he traded away and then governed like he was, you know, no no sort of polite way of putting this, like he was shit scared of um of, of his party room welling up on him again, and and it led really to in the end the very failure. Which was the you know the loss of the job that he seemed to be frightened that he would bring about? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really good insight, Mark. Because you know if you think about you know the kind of disappointment that his supporters had in his prime ministership, I think it's really a function of you know him having you know perhaps overlearned uh, the lessons from that first period as leader. I mean, leadership is always a balancing act between. You know, leading from the front and making sure that people are following you. In his first iteration of Malcolm, Malcolm 1.0, you know, he was, um, you know, perhaps, um, you know, he, he was wasn't able to bring people along. And in Malcolm 2.0, perhaps he wasn't, um, you know, uh, displaying sufficient conviction, particularly on those policy areas where a lot of people were were counting on him, whether it's climate change and energy or or other areas as well. So I think there was a bit of uh, disappointment that he seems to have kind of overlearned from that from that first period. Um, you know, it's easy, I guess, for for the rest of us to kind of, um, you know, it's a it's a bloody hard job, obviously, and you you everyone does their best, and and history will cast their judgments on on prime ministers. But I think that is a an important insight. It makes me think of this. I know you're a basketball guy as well, Mark, so you'll appreciate a LeBron James. Reference, but I read this article once. It was about LeBron James and I think maybe Tiger Woods and a couple of other athletes. And they said what made them great was their capacity to underreact. You know, when 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 there was a massive thing going on, LeBron James, you know, the pulse kind of slows, um, and and Michael Jordan would have been the same, and others. And I think in politics, we're not very good collectively at at underreacting. You know, we sort of. Um, 
you know, and, and maybe there's a maybe the absence of that in in the second incarnation of Malcolm explains the sort of difficulties that he had. Yeah, that's a, a terrific uh, a terrific comparison to make. Actually, uh, I was thinking of the neg, for example. You know, he he actually was proud of saying he got it through the party room twice, but he still blinked when it came time to taking it to the floor because he was told that Abbott and Craig Kelly and a few others might cross the floor. I mean, he probably would have had the support of the opposition at the time and it would have been those guys. Yeah, it would have. Would, yeah, and it, and it yeah, would have been he, he, those he would recalcitrants. Have. Yeah, so, but, but nonetheless, he I still could do it. Yeah, it was pretty obvious, I think, that he would have had probably 90, 90% of the parliament, um, which doesn't happen on the really big stuff, you know, that that often. So, yeah, I mean, clearly I, you know, you'd have to ask him, but I, I suspect uh, they would do things differently. But the other thing about that is, I mean, that the architect of that was was the now treasurer, um, and so Malcolm shouldn't carry the can on his own for 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 that. Um, there's enough uh, there's enough blame for for energy uncertainty to go around. <laughs> um, but but I think um, I think Malcolm's reflections on that period certainly when I was you know picking the eyes out of the book because I'm a bit you know haven't had time to read the whole thing yet. I think that you know his personal reflections on 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 after he lost the leadership, but also the reflections on the various missteps in energy policy and climate policy are worth reading. Jim, it's been terrific having you on Democracy Sausage. I hope we can do so again at some stage. Um, there's obviously a, an extremely kind of um, interesting and, and challenging time for the making of economic policy and, and for the functioning of politics. We're going to see how all of these, all of these things play out and I'm sure there'll be a good cause to, uh, to talk with you again. And it's great also to have you as a, an ANU alumnus talking on on this ANU-based podcast. So thanks for your time, Jim. It's been terrific. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, it'll be good to talk again. And thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage Extra. Uh, stay uh, stay tuned, I guess, for uh, our uh, regular podcast that comes out on Monday of each week, and uh, we'll talk to you again then. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.